0: You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Grab your Bible and join me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. Luke 17, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10 this morning. When I say the phrase, You ought to forgive them does a face pop into your mind? Hopefully it's not the same face that other people have in the, in the room, but if I say the phrase, you ought to forgive them, is there a person that shows up in the recollection of your, uh, your mind's eye? Well, probably so. If you're a human, not a robot. If you had relationships with individuals, We have ample opportunities for forgiveness to need to take place. And yet, to say, forgive them, is a whole lot easier to say maybe than it is to do, right? Today's sermon was supposed to be two sermons. Uh, We're going through a series right now called Just Like Jesus, taking a look at the the character traits and emotional responses and sometimes actions of Jesus and how did He respond in certain scenarios. And I was planning on doing a sermon on patience, just like Jesus, and forgiveness, just like Jesus. And the more I began to drill down on those two things, there began to be a a pattern uh, that came up for me uh, that I don't know that I necessarily had seen as clearly before, um, drilling down into those two subjects. I've taught on those things together, but I don't know that I had them in close proximity on a list where it kind of forced me to take a look at them and uh, in relationship. Uh, and so the more that I drilled down into these two traits, uh, I, I began to see a pattern... That all aspects of patience involve differing degrees of forgiveness. All aspects of patience involve differing degrees of forgiveness. And we're going to unpack a little bit about what that looks like and what that means. When the other members of your group project that you're working on either in work or in class time or other things like that are not completing their part of the project, they're not pulling their weight in whatever the uh, venture is that you're uh, engaging in, patience would usually be defined as the ability to wait well, right? That's normally how we would define patience. Your ability to be able to stick it out and wait in a good fashion, right? Uh, patience is not, right? Come on, hurt. You know, like that's not patience. We wouldn't define that as patience. It's being normally we would define it as being able to wait well. Uh, and forgiveness is usually defined in kind of common vernacular as coming to the feeling that was originally not okay. You're now. Tolerant towards. So, usually when people talk about forgiveness, they talk about it in terms of a coming to a feeling that forgiveness is primarily a, a feeling in this capacity that what you were originally not okay with, not necessarily that you're now okay with it, but that you are now tolerant towards. So those two definitions as they float in kind of normal circles and normal conversations when people say you need to be patient or they say you ought to forgive them, oftentimes it's about time and about feeling as it relates. However, patience is not just waiting and forgiveness is certainly not, according to Jesus, a feeling. Scripture links the two concepts as inseparable realities of the same character, quality of Jesus. If you think about moments in which you are uh, being called to be patient, there's something or somebody that you are being pressed to have to forgive for making you wait in some capacity. Patience... Then is the ability to do forgiveness continually regardless of how you feel. Let me say that again because I'm making some statements that are counter to our normal vernacular. Patience is the ability to do forgiveness continually regardless of how you feel. Take a look with me in Luke chapter 17. This may not be a familiar text for you, maybe, but it it may not be. There may be maybe parts of it that are. But Luke chapter 17, verse 3, we're going to go read from verse 3 all the way through verse 10. This is what it says. Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will not he say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the thing which was commanded him to do. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. This is the Word of the Lord. Jesus begins this text... uh, with be on your guard. And he's linking this with maybe a passage that you're a little bit more familiar with. In Luke's Gospel, he records this in a different placement than the other uh, uh, Matthew and Mark do. Uh, but it's it follows up with that uh, woe to those who lead these little ones astray. It would be better that they have a, a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the sea and drowned than to lead one of these little ones astray. this very hard and harsh reality that Jesus is describing there of those that are leading people into sin. And in this context, He's he's alluding to the fact that He's not in this, talking about children, but talking about those who are little in the faith, younger, uh, maybe less mature uh, uh, followers of the Lord. And He says, listen, uh, it's those woe to them that live this kind of way, But then as He's teaching about the other, those woe, those people, those wicked people, He does what He so often does. He turns back to them and He says, so you, yourselves, you be on your guard. Jesus is telling the disciples that without intentional effort, we will not walk in obedience to what Jesus is fixing to say. We will not accidentally slip into this kind of Jesus-like living, Christ-like living. We won't just accidentally move morph ourselves into walking in this way. So Jesus is telling us that without intentional effort, we're not going to be obedient to this. He says, be on your guard. Pay close attention to yourselves. Have your ears open, your eyes open. Be attentive to what is going on with you. Jesus leads out this section of teaching with a picture of what He means for forgiveness to look like between professing believers. And it is a distinction on this. It's one of the challenging things as we read scripture <clears throat> to know one who is the audience that this word is being written towards. Is this is Jesus writing this for people that are professing to follow him? Is this him writing to like the, the scribes and the Pharisees, those that were not following him? And who is the when he talks about how we interact with other people? Is he describing those that are inside the faith or outside of the faith? So we have to pay attention to those things. But he gives us one word clue that helps us understand who he's specifically talking about here. Uh, he says, uh, if your brother sins against you, and he's not, in this context, he's not necessarily talking about biological brother, he's talking about the brethren, those that are connected to those in the faith. He's describing here those that are professing believers, or in his context, professor, pre- professing followers of him, And He's telling this specifically to His disciples and teaching this to them. Forgiveness here is focused on how we forgive others who ought to know better. So the forgiveness that He's describing for us here is to those who ought to know better and still do the action that needs forgiving. Which I think is a little bit of a different thing for us as we think of the terms of what does forgiveness look like when we have to forgive somebody who doesn't know better. Who we look at and they say, they're not followers of the Lord. They don't know His commandments. They don't know His love. They don't know His mercy. They don't know His things. How ought we to forgive those that, are, that, that don't know better? Well, one, for us as Christians, we know that because of what Christ has done for us, we were once separated from God, enemies of God. And so it turns our heart in a different way to go, they don't know better. It should shift the way that we're doing it. And so in that case, forgiveness should come a little bit more freely. But in this, this becomes something that's a little bit harder. We're looking at it and going, you ought to know better. You ought to know this is not right. You ought to know this hurt. You ought to know these things. And yet, you still did it. So forgiveness here is focused on how we forgive others who ought to know better. And he gives a an, an ideal pattern of Christian behavior as it goes of us living our lives, because I don't know if you guys know this, the day that you became a follower of Jesus, you don't become perfect. Like It doesn't just automatically down... It's not like the Matrix, right? Where they plug it into the back of your head, and you know, all of a sudden you know jiu and how to be a perfect Christian, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't play out. It would be great if it did, but it doesn't play out that way. So how are we as Christians to ideally walk through the reality of either when we're the one that makes the mistake... Or when somebody else, another believer in relationship to us is the one that commits the offense. And the pattern that he lays out is this. Sin happens. A rebuke takes place. Repentance wells up. And forgiveness happens. The sin takes place by the one, the offending party, sins against the other. The one that is sinned against rebukes the other that has sinned against them, shows them the error of their ways, that rebuke causes in them to well up a a sense of going, I have wronged you. I have sinned. Please forgive me. I come in repentance. And then the one who was offended, the one who was hurt, gives forgiveness. That's the ideal pattern that he lays out here. And he just simply says it this way, if your brother sins, rebukes, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. It's important for us to think about this and understand this because the rebuking and the forgiving are not separate events. They're not something that happens... I, oftentimes, we talk about forgiveness uh, in, in terms of no rebuke has taken place. Nobody likes to be rebuked. Nobody likes to be disciplined. Nobody likes to be corrected. But if we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that we are not yet what we are meant to be, we should love that correction when somebody does step into our life and says something like, Chris, this ought not be. Or the, the pattern of behavior that you've showed towards me or towards your wife or towards your kids or towards your community, that's not okay. The pattern of speech, the what you say, the how you say it, the, uh, the, the the tone, the the emphasis, the motive behind why you do it, it's not right. And here's why from Scripture. The rebuke should come. Oftentimes we talk about forgiveness as though there's nothing that comes before it. It's just your responsibility, you ought to Forgive. You know, suck it up, buttercup, rub some dirt on it, and forgive. But he says that these things are connected to each other, that when sin occurs, rebuke should happen. It should be what happens to us every time that we read Scripture. And we see our sin before a holy God that He from His Word is rebuking us. The Holy Spirit is welling up inside of us this reality that what we have done, this pattern of behavior, this way of living that we had that was contrary to what God has said was not right. And so we respond in faith, belief, and repentance and we are met by God's perfect forgiveness. This is the perfect pattern, right? And if this played out this way every single time, man, this would be great, right? Like if we knew somebody, you know, somebody comes and cusses us out and we're hurt, you know, our, our spouse or our, our, you know, somebody else from the church and they're just like, man, that was so out of behavior or whatever. And then they, they come back and it's like, you know, uh, you know we, we go and we tell them, hey, th- you know, what you did, that was wrong. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know what, I was, I, you're right, I'm so sorry. And then our, it's easier for us to go, you know what, it's, it's okay, I forgive you. Because we can see the genuineness of their response, right? And so when we can see the genuineness of their response, something wells up inside of us. And it is the feeling of forgiveness, right? What the world describes as the feeling of forgiveness. But what if that feeling isn't there? What if the feeling doesn't come? I always love the illustration of every time you watch little kids interact with each other, somebody's going to hurt somebody's feelings, somebody's not going to share, somebody's going to steal, somebody's going to say something hurtful, and somebody's going to cry and they're going to go run to an adult and they're going to tell it and the adult's going to go back and the adult's going to pull the two kids together and they're going to say something to each other, to those kids, and what are they going to tell oftentimes the, the one kid that did the offense? Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. And how's the kid going to respond? Sorry. Right? And then we expect the other kid to say, it's okay. Right? And we look at that, and honestly in the midst of it, we're just like, no, we're just trying to teach them normal social behavior, but if you expound that up from the little kid to the grown-up adult, right? (laughs) Right? And the principal has to go bring the teacher into the other teacher that you know fussed at each other at the, at the staff meeting thing. And, they're, and so say you're sorry. Sorry, right? It's okay. And it seems so ridiculous on an adult level. Why? Because the feeling isn't there. The genuineness isn't there. And so is it right for the one to say, it's, it's not okay. I don't feel like it's okay. It's not right. It's not good. It's not, it's not whatever it needs to be. So what do we do when the ideal pattern, sin, rebuke, repentance, and forgiveness, is not maybe necessarily clear? Is this, this ideal? But what if it's not the ideal? Well, He gives us this kind of ridiculous example of it. He says, uh, yeah, if, you're, you know, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then if he sins against you seven times in a day, And he comes to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Notice he doesn't doesn't just say, forgive him, or feel forgiveness towards him, or anything else. He uses a word because it's an imperative that's used here. And the translators say, must. You must. Forgive Him. And I don't know about you, but that kind of rubs me wrong in all my sinfulness. Because if somebody comes and they sin the exact same way seven times in the day, and every time after they do it, they come back to me and they say, oh, you know what, man, I'm sorry. And I say, you know, the first time, alright, you know, I forgive you. Then they do it again, and they come back and say, oh, man, I'm sorry. Right? First time, shame on me. Seventh time... You know, first time, shame on you. Seventh time, definitely, definitely shame on me, right? That's what the culture would say. And yet, in the reality of that, it's obvious that their motive is not genuine repentance. If their motive was genuine repentance, it would have stopped after the first time. And yet, again, and again, and again... It's a ridiculous number of times. How can you possibly know if their repentance is genuine? And this is the point of Jesus' teaching on this. You can't. You can't. It is impossible. You can't know that they're genuine. You can't know their motives. You can't know their heart in this. All you can see is their action. And yet knowing that, Jesus says, we Must forgive. Jesus calls us to an impossible task in this story, in this teaching, in this lesson. And yet, if we say as followers of Jesus, we want to be conformed in the image of Jesus. We want to be Christ-like. We want to live as Jesus did. This is the standard by which Jesus brings up for us to live in. He calls us to what I think we can best describe as Patient forgiveness. Patient forgiveness. Look at how the disciples respond. In verse 5, the disciples have one statement to make to this teaching. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. No one actually can have this kind of patience for another human being. You, You can't. You just... You just can't, right? Everybody that's ever parented a toddler knows the frustration of them learning, again, saying, I told you not to, as they're turning and looking at you and doing the exact thing that you just said five minutes ago. Don't do that thing, right? And again and again and again, it becomes exhausting. But there's an element of it that we're going like, but they're a toddler. So... It feels a little bit different when they're a teenager or a 20-something or a 50-year-old or an elder. And you're going, you know better. You know better than this. It's an impossible kind of forgiveness. No one naturally can have this kind of patience towards another person. They know... That the cost, the disciples know that the cost of this kind of forgiveness is greater than they have the capacity to give. They know this is beyond them. It's not something that they're able to uh, uh, accomplish on their own power. That's why they responded this message to Jesus saying, Increase our faith, increase what we're believing about this. The word that's used in this passage for forgive, in this teaching that Jesus has, is kind of an interesting word when you drill down into it. Uh, if you take what's known as a Strong's Concordance, and you guys know what a Strong's Concordance is? Strong, I, I probably should have grabbed one. It's a big old stinking study book, Bible study book, and it literally has every single word in the Bible but mapped out alphabetically. So if you look at. Uh, the word uh, hill Want to look up the word hill in the Bible. You flip to hill and you and it'll tell you every Bible verse where the word hill is used there. And then you can take a look, and sometimes different words or different Greek words are translated into English as hill, which makes it a little bit more complicated. So sometimes you can go to the back of it and you can say, okay, I want to know this particular Greek word, and where is every verse where that one particular Greek word is used? And you can pull that up. When you pull up this particular verse, word that's here, that's used this, uh, a one third of the times that it's used, of the 173 times that it's used in the New Testament, a third of the times that it's used, it's translated as forgive. The other two thirds of the time that it's used, uh, it is translated as left, or abandoned, or set aside, so this is the same word that is used when Jesus calls the disciples to come follow Him and it says that they uh, aphiamide their nets, they left their nets and they followed Him. Uh, in other words, the word means let it be as it is. Just leave it as it is. Let it sit in its existence as it is in the place where it's at. Let it be as it is. It's the word that is used by Jesus when John the Baptist doesn't want to baptize him. John says, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus says, Ephemi, let it be as it is. Let it sit as it is. I really like actually, I don't preach out of King James, but sometimes the King James is kind of fun in some of these words, and the old King James, it translates it as, suffer it to be so. Suffer it to be so. This makes you uncomfortable? Suffer it. And so it says, John suffered him so. John let it be. It was awkward, it was weird, it was strange, and he just let it be as it was the disciples know that to forgive the way that Jesus is telling them to forgive that they cannot demand the things be as if they were not that the debt that is owed be resolved they can't demand that they this is why they, their response is so quick and abrupt they're like this is hard Increase our faith, Lord, we, we want to be able to do this, but this is impossible for us. Help us learn how to be this kind of way help us. Help us to have faith that is able to do this kind of thing. Jesus responds to their statement in verse six. He says, "If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, "You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, And they will obey you. We see this same word picture that Jesus uses in other places talking about faith. He says, you know, if you have the the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast yourself into the sea and it will be so. It's the same kind of picture. But what Jesus is saying here is ultimately I'm not going to grant your request. You're asking for more faith and I'm not going to do that which seems kind of striking to us, right? Like that would seem like a good thing that they were praying for. God, I want more faith. Increase my faith. And Jesus pushes back on this and He calls them to apply the little bit of faith that they already have. See, sometimes we, we, uh, we drill down into these word pictures that Jesus gives. Like, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say, do this incredible thing. Tell the mountain to be uprooted and cast in the sea. Or the tree be uprooted and cast yourself into the sea and it'll be so. That would be a miraculous thing, right? Anybody's you know, standing there on the riverbank and they walk up to a big spruce tree and they say, cast into the, into the river, like a missile and goes into it. And we'd be like, that's incredible, right? That would be insane. It's Jesus causing this ridiculousness to come out of saying like, it doesn't take much to accomplish what I'm asking you to do. And you think it takes a lot to accomplish something little. Jesus is calling them to walk in obedient faith. It's kind of like one of my favorite lines from uh, Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is asked about uh, how it is that... Uh, they're going to conquer this invading army. And he says, you know, there are leaders that think that wars are won by, or that evil is conquered by great men and by powerful forces and armies. And he says, but I find that it's the common things. It's the simple everyday kindnesses that keep the darkness at bay. And Jesus is telling them, little faith is all that you need. Be obedient to the little bit that you know. The disciples were interpreting faith as understanding belief. To not just know information, but be able to fully understand it. And if you fully understand it, it doesn't seem very intimidating anymore, right? All of us have learned this in education. There was at some point in time at which you stepped into something and you just you didn't really know all that there was to know about, and it just seemed really intimidating. But the longer you walked in it, the more understanding that you had, and so it didn't become intimidating anymore because of the knowledge that you had. They were interpreting faith the same way. Give us greater understanding so that it's not hard. So that we understand it and can walk in it easier. Give us understanding in this subject, and then we can be obedient to it. That's the kind of faith that they were describing. How do we know it will be our How do we know that it will all work out the way that it's supposed to? Give us more understanding of the pros and cons. Integral understandings of the human dynamics. Increase our faith. And Jesus says, simply, believe me and don't worry about the outcome. Believe me and don't worry about the outcome. That's simple, small faith. Not deep understanding, just a pure and true trust of saying, I don't know that this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know what the end of this is going to be, but Jesus, I just trust You. I just trust You. Then, however it plays out, I'm trusting You. You're going to accomplish what, I, I, what, what You intend to happen. In this, the reason that, tra- that forgiveness is translated as forgiveness instead of let it be as it is, um, is because with forgiveness, there's a debt associated with it. So the, that's how when they translate this word, they pick out you know whether they're, they're just leaving it behind or letting it sit or translating it as forgive when he says there's a debt associated with this word. And the thing that makes a debt interesting in relation to forgiveness Is that when there is a debt, there has to be somebody that pays it. Has to be. Otherwise it wouldn't be a debt. It would just be a gift. If it's a debt, somebody has to pay the debt. Somebody has to uh, assume it. So we're all familiar with this, right? If you take out a loan for a new snow machine this winter, and you decide to stop paying for it, The bank cannot just simply say, well, let it be as it is. That's not the way that it works because there is a debt associated with that transaction. That debt exists. And so, by default, they either have to assume the financial loss themselves, well, I'm not selling to that guy anymore, so I'll just take it on the chin, and well, you know, we just lost that money that we put out for that. They can do that or their insurance company will kick in and the insurance company will assume the loss. So we've been paying you and now you're going to take that loss and, and you, we recoup that money and you guys assume that. Or, more likely than not, they'll come after you and you will assume the loss. Either by them putting a judgment against you or something like that or coming and taking the snow machine back and then you lost whatever money that you had put into it, right? The debt has to be paid and this is why it is translated as forgive rather than just let it be or left it there or whatever. Somebody has to pay the debt. One way or another, the debt gets paid. And this is why we recoil so readily at the command of Jesus to forgive so liberally. We know that there's a price to be paid. For us to forgive somebody else means that a debt that is owed to us, or at least a debt that we assume is owed to us, has to get assimilated by us. At least it is so if that person's repentance is not genuine because it's easier, right? If somebody genuinely is broken, again, it's it's so much easier if somebody's like, I really am sorry. I really am sorry for us to say I forgive you. But if they say I'm sorry and there's that glint in their eye like I don't really know that you are. Really costly. Really hard. Now, I do want to give a caveat to this. Because sometimes we can misconstrued forgiveness in terms of uh, passiveness. That we are to forgive in such a way as to there's never consequences to actions and the Bible does not teach that. That forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. That sometimes it is for us to look at another person and say, I forgive you as we are picking up the phone to call the police or to call Child Protective Services or to protect ourselves in some other kind of way. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences to actions here on earth. Jesus doesn't just drop an unrealistic expectation on us without showing us the motivation uh, for our obedience. He gives what feels like a very harsh illustration for Jesus. Jesus very often gives illustrations that seem much more life-giving and uplifting and things like that. But in verse 7 he says this, Which one of you having a, a servant, a slave, your translation might say, who's tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat and get ready and serve me while I eat and drink later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now again, this is one of those... Word pictures, it's really hard for us in present day context. We we read the term servant, we read the term slave, and we recoil because it's uh, of the history of our our country and the history of the Western world and how we imprint onto that. This this word that is used here throughout the New Testament is almost always, almost always, uh, uh, with a couple of exceptions, but almost always used in terms of a debtor servant somebody who has gone into debt with somebody and they've gotten in a situation where they cannot pay the debt. And so to pay the debt, they are forced into employment of that individual until they can pay off their debt. So they're not the classic, what you would think of of a a Roman slave or something like that that was captured or born into the slavery or something like that. And there's no chance of their freedom. This is individuals who they did something or they uh, purchased something that they couldn't pay for and got into this situation. And he paints this picture of them saying, which one of you, this seems ridiculous, you have this servant, somebody that's working for you, and they come in from working, and they're working for you, and you say, hey, come eat, I've fixed a meal for you, let's, let's uh, sit in fellowship as though we're equal in this, saying, no, 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 you keep doing your job. You go cook the food. You come serve me. And once you've finished your job, then you come and can, can uh, serve yourself and come eat in this kind of a way. And in the end of that, what have they done? What have they accomplished? They just simply did their job. They just simply did their duty. And this is Jesus pointing this in a, in a pretty poignant real way because this is the way the world worked in their, in their world. They could see this very clearly. I think it's even hard for us today because we're in this uh, uh, moment in, I guess, employment, Western employment history, where uh, employment is freely taken, freely given. You can apply for all kind of jobs. The options are open for you, right? There's people that are doing what's being classified as quiet quitting, which just sounds like they're just doing their very basic job and not doing anything extra, right? You know? And so this pressure of, you know, if you work hard, then you're, you're taking on extra assignments and you're doing other things and, and everybody's going, no, 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 unless you're paying me for that, I'm not doing those kind of things, right? So we're, we're in this tense moment of a kind of thing. And he's painting this picture for them in their day of saying, like, this sounds ridiculous, right? For them to just step in and all of a sudden be elevated to the place of being the Master. The world has a pattern of power that is either we climb to the top or we start out demanding a seat at the table. That's the way the world works in power. We either climb our way, work our way up to the top, or we from day one step in with a chip on our shoulder like, I deserve. I deserve this place at the table. I deserve this place of elevation. But we know from Jesus' teaching, this is why we take all of Scripture, that the Gospel tells us that through Christ, God elevates us from slaves to sons. Which I don't know that we necessarily fully grasp the reality of that. I think in our modern day world, it's, it's, it's more like us looking at somebody that was once a Taliban fighter that's now been elevated to somebody that sits at our Thanksgiving dinner. Once our enemy, now our dearest friend. That's the picture of the Gospel. And Jesus consistently teaches us that the Christian position is one that is always of humble status. We forgive others not because we feel like it. We forgive others not because it's the right thing to do. We forgive others because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. And the greater understanding that we have of our own need for forgiveness, the more clarity it gives us as God calls us to say, you must Forgive. When the Lord's Prayer is taught in this text, He uses that same word where He says, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then immediately in the closing of that, He says, for if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And it seems like a, I have to do this to this. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the teaching of this. I think it's Him saying, listen, you don't understand your position. You're somebody with a debt who came under the obedience of Christ who paid your debt. He assumed your debt. It couldn't just sit there. God was righteous. Our sin was in a rebellion against Him. It was an affront against Him. And God loved us in that kind of a way. We forgive others because we understand the depths of the forgiveness that we needed. And if we don't understand the depths of uh, how much we needed forgiveness for, we have not actually seen Christ. Because by experience of Him, He teaches us just how desperately we need Him. Think about all the griefs and sins that you've gotten away with in your life. Sure, there's lots of things that we've gotten caught on. Mom and Dad caught us. and Friends and family have caught us in things. Slip-ups and that. But there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of things. That we've gotten away with. Nobody knows. Nobody's seen. What if your spouse knew every thought you've ever had? What if your boss knew every lack of effort that you were ever paid for? What if your friends knew every gossip that you had shared about them? What if every secret action that you've ever ever done was laid bare in a moment? What if all of those things were called to account in one single instant? Who could stand? None of us. If we were to take all the thoughts that we've had this past week towards our fellow man, and were to put them on PowerPoint slides, and show it before the church, you would enter into witness protection. <laughs> right. So would I. The brokenness that still exists within us is is so powerful. Our own need for forgiveness is so great. And so, when God calls us into that reality and elevates us to the place of sons and daughters, when He shows us His forgiveness, it does not remove the sense of humility. There is no room for arrogance within followers of Jesus Christ. Because our model is Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 5 begins to give us the picture of what was Jesus like in relation to this kind of a thing. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Jesus Christ who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for His own advantage. To the glory of God the Father. When we look to Jesus, we see the perfect image of perfect splendor, deserving of all glory and authority and everything else, elevated to the highest place. When He walks in the door, He deserves to be at the front of the table. He deserves to have the attaboy. He deserves to have everything that is there. And yet, He did not use any of that for His own advantage, but He humbled Himself. If our great King did that for us, how can we do anything other? How can we walk in any form of arrogance? How can we walk in any form of unforgiveness? Jesus showed us through His life that His decision to be obedient to the Father's will was not always based upon the fact that He felt like it. Sometimes forgiveness for you will look like the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way, take this from me. Let them repent. Let them be broken. Let them die. Let something else happen. Let, let they not have to walk through this moment. Yet, not my will. Your will be done. Because here's the thing with our forgiveness. Our forgiveness does not absolve the person's sin. Because we're not God. It has been described that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. There are some people in your life that you need to forgive who they don't even remember that they've wronged you. They've walked away from that. And you're holding on to this reality. Again, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences for them. what it means is that we are to take the little bit of faith that we have and say, Jesus, I don't understand. It doesn't look right to me. But You made it pretty clear. And so I'm not trusting the outcome. I'm not trusting the circumstances. And I'm not trusting my feeling. I'm trusting You. And so I'm choosing to forgive. I'm choosing to walk in obedience to what you command. And in so doing, the Bible tells us that we will be exalted with Christ. That all of our lowliness will be exalted with Him. Not on our own merits, but upon His faithfulness. The debt that we owed was atoned for. We have been justified, literally, just as if I never sinned, just as if the offense never took place. The debt doesn't still loom there. It's been satisfied in Christ. It is the great gift of the Gospel. So two things this morning. If you need to be forgiven, run to Jesus. The Bible tells us if we, in prayer, or sitting in prayer... And the Holy Spirit prompts us that there is something ought between us and another person. We ought to go and be reconciled to them. If we know I have wronged you, don't go and say, I'm sorry. Go and say, I repent. Walk that ideal. Walk that pattern. And if you're a follower of Jesus, never forget the depth that we have been forgiven. That's why He's a good and faithful God. He loves us in spite of us. Which is such an incredible gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that uh, even though it is hard, it's not easy. It's true. It's real. And so Lord, even as I ask the question, or make the statement, You ought to forgive blank. And a face comes to mind. Lord, even when we don't feel like it, maybe even especially when we don't feel like it, help us to forgive. Help us to look into our own heart and see the reality of the depths of how much we have been forgiven. And Lord, if there's any here this morning that have never trusted by faith in Your forgiveness and Your sufficiency to atone for all of their rebellion, all of those things that if the world knew, we would be shattered. Jesus, you are sufficient, and we are so, so grateful. We love you, King Jesus. We pray all this in the sweet and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.